0: So, who here likes a good happily ever after or a happy ending, whether it's a book or a movie? Come on, don't be shy. All right, that's a lot of hands. That's good. Um, Happy ending books and movies are stubbornly popular, okay? Despite the disdain of art critics who are often too sophisticated um, and cynical for such offerings, Um, why are they like that? Well, life isn't like that, right? So art shouldn't be either. It's too simple. It's like escapist, too out of step with reality. Life's more complicated than that. It's harsher, more brutal, even more seemingly random than these happy endings often portray. So one writer noted this, that um, he said, perhaps that is the reason that Steven Spielberg was refused any Oscars until he stopped making movies with only happy endings. Yet his fairytale ending movies are his most popular by far. I don't know if that's really true, but it's interesting, okay? But again, in one sense, the critics are right, aren't they? I mean, it's true that life is complicated. It's often tragic and brutal, I mean, it's why I have no interest in watching a Hallmark movie. Sorry if I'm stepping on your toes. Okay, you got an amen over here. That's good. Um, It's why a lot of Christian films are too saccharine, you know, too sentimental and simplistic. So what is in line, what's most in line with reality? If you think about it, this cynicism of the critic accords with the prevailing worldview of a lot of our culture, secularism. So if life is ultimately meaningless, you know, we just kind of are the result of random chance and and mutations and so forth, then of course happily ever after, or at least happy endings, are just a form of opium for the people, opium for the masses, like Karl Marx said. He said that religion was the opium of the people, of the masses. Life is full of pain and suffering and cruelty. We're all gonna die and be worm food, so let's not lie to ourselves that we're gonna ride off into the sunset to live happily ever after. I mean, if you do that, you're just like taking an existential placebo pill just to make you feel better. It's a scam, right? It's a con job. And we try to pull that on ourselves. Like, why would we go and do such a thing? But happy ending movies are still stubbornly popular. And sometimes even the critics like them. You know, if you saw Top Gun Maverick, even the critics seem to like that one. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it doesn't matter. You still heard the point. Okay. The question is, why? Why do we love happy endings? Why does that... Persist as a popular genre. It's a very interesting question. So hold on to that question, and we're going to circle back around to it at the end. So this morning is Resurrection Sunday, and for Christians, this is like the greatest day of the year. Okay, the resurrection of Jesus is everything. You see it. If if this isn't true, what does the text say that Jemmy? I mean, the Bible's realistic. Like you're still in your sins. We are above all people most to be pitied. What are we doing in here? We could be having a really good brunch right now. Like, let's not waste our time. So if you are a guest with us this morning, or maybe you're visiting family or whatever, we're really glad that you're here with us. And if any of you are unfamiliar with the Bible, it's divided up into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, The turning point between the two is the life of Jesus. So there are four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament, written by eyewitnesses and early disciples, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we have been studying here at Bethel through Mark's account for a while now. And this morning we actually kinda of lined it up so that we would consider the resurrection. Mark sixteen, one to eight, the account of the resurrection on Resurrection Sunday morning. And so we're finishing our study in Mark, but don't worry um, you won't have to have listened to everything up until this point to understand what we're considering this morning. Um, but let's read this section, and then we're going to reflect on what it means. The text will be on the screens, but you can also follow along in a hard copy if you want. There are hard copies provided for you in the pew be- in front of you. Um, it's a black Bible. There's blue books there, too. Those are the hymnals. Um, so you can find this passage, Mark 16, to 8 on page 853 in the pew Bible. And, and if you don't have a copy of the Bible, you're welcome to take one of those black Bibles as your own. i um, happy to give that to you. So let's read Mark 16, 1 to 8, and then we're going to consider it together. So this is after Jesus died on the cross, was buried in that borrowed tomb. So three days later, he died on Friday. So that's one day. Saturday is the Sabbath. It actually, for them, started Friday night at dusk and ended Saturday at dusk. So the third day starts Saturday night. That begins um, the day after the Sabbath, and so that's the third day. When the Sabbath was passed, so this is probably after sunset on Saturday evening, and they would mark that as the beginning of the next day, um, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices they bought them Saturday night so that they might go and anoint him the next morning so the Sabbath is over they can go buy spices now they did that Saturday night and then very early on the first day of the week Sunday morning when the sun had risen they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb and looking up they saw that the stone had been rolled back it was very large just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So four points this morning. Um, You'll see them on the screen. Uh, Credible. Is the resurrection credible? Subtle. What do I mean by that? Well, this is a very sparing account. Mark's gospel is the shortest of the four, but there's rich subtlety here that we need to see and appreciate. Strange is the third point. Like the ending of Mark's gospel is actually kind of strange if you compare it with the other three. And we need to take a few minutes to ponder why that might be the case. And then fourth and finally, we need to consider our deep beliefs. Or you could say the beliefs underneath how we think and feel and react and live okay so that's where we're headed first point credible is the resurrection credible so it may be worth mentioning just really quickly that there really aren't any scholars that doubt that jesus lived okay we're talking about the credibility of the resurrection but maybe we should start back with his existence um, we're not dealing with legends here. The life of Jesus is indisputable, even by the testimony of scholars that don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So, for instance, Bart Ehrman is a New Testament scholar, but he doesn't believe in the resurrection. He's studied the Bible a lot, but he says, even as someone who doesn't even believe, he's not, he's not a friend of Christianity, he says the reality is that whatever else you may think about Jesus, he certainly did exist, Then he goes on to say that this view is held by virtually every expert on the planet, expert in biblical studies. So Jesus really lived. He really died. Again, historical testimony is clear, but what about the resurrection? I mean, doesn't that seem highly unlikely? How do we know this isn't religious legend and propaganda that grew over time? So Let's address that. So first off, we need to see something that we might tend to look right past in our day and age. So look back at verse 40. If you have the text open, look at chapter 15, verse 40. Um, there were also women looking on from a distance. So this is Jesus hanging on the cross. There were women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and Salome. Verse 41, when he was in Galilee, they were following him, ministering to him. Okay, so they were disciples. And then down in 47, after Joseph of Arimathea buries Jesus' body in this tomb, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, two of the same people that were mentioned in verse 40, saw where he was laid, right? Now, chapter 16 starts with when the sabbath was passed Mary Magdalene Mary the mother of James Mary the mother of James and Joseph it's the same lady she's mentioned three times these two ladies are mentioned three times they were the ones that went to the tomb okay along with Salome so who are the first witnesses to the empty tomb and the resurrected Jesus women that doesn't strike us as odd now but it would have actually and very strange to first century readers. They would have seen that. Like if, if this was supposed to be propaganda, if you're trying to kind of build this conspiracy and, and see if you can pull it off for the sake of growing some, you know, religious group, this is a really bad way to start. This is not going to be persuasive religious propaganda in the first century. In the Greco-Roman world at the time, women were thought, quote, thought by educated men to be gullible in religious matters and especially prone to superstitious fantasy and excessive religious practices. There was a second century Greek philosopher named Kelsus who wrote this. After death, Jesus rose again and showed the marks of his punishment and how his hands had been pierced. But who saw this? A hysterical female, as you say, and perhaps some other one of those who were deluded by the same sorcery. So this is the thinking at the time, both Jews and Greeks at the time did not accept the testimony of women in a legal context. So if you're trying to make your movement credible at the time, you know, if this didn't really happen, but we're just trying to drum up support, this is not the way to do it, unless this is how it really happened. So, okay, That's worth noting, right? Well, some people also dismiss the resurrection because they think, ah, those people back then, they were pre-scientific, it was before the enlightenment, they believed in the resurrection because they were naive and gullible. I mean, we know better now. Well, C.S. Lewis would call that chronological snobbery. Like, later generations, later civilizations always know better than earlier ones. You know, we might be able to debunk that just by looking at the news. And seeing how well that theory is working for us in the world today. Is it getting just progressively better, generation after generation? But that aside, don't miss the fact that the disciples didn't expect or believe the resurrection. Jesus had predicted it like four times in the Gospel of Mark. He said ahead of time, I'm gonna rise, I'm gonna rise, I'm gonna gonna die, I'm gonna suffer and die and rise. He said it four times nobody said, hey, it's the third day. Like, do you think, we could, you think we should maybe just go check? Like, that's not why these women were going to the tomb. They were going out of an act of devotion. You know, they didn't embalm bodies. It's hot there. Bodies are going to decay quickly. It's an act of devotion to guard against the smell and the decay try to counteract it a little bit. So these women didn't believe it. They ran out fearful. When the women, we we know from other accounts at the end of the other gospels, like when the women told the male disciples, they didn't believe them. Even Jesus appears to some of the disciples and Thomas wasn't there, remember, doubting Thomas? And he says, nope, I've got to see him with my own eyes and I've got to put my hands, you know, touch those scars and his side, then I'll believe. So they weren't naive and gullible. Like they weren't spring-loaded to believe this. One more thing that we should consider relative to the credibility of the resurrection, you have to account for the crazy explosive spread of Christianity. Like there were lots of failed messianic movements around that time. The leader would get killed. The movement died shortly thereafter. Like why did that not happen with this one? So just stop and think of how improbable this is unless Jesus actually rose from the dead. Your leader dies. All the disciples scatter in fear. No one expects anything like a resurrection to occur. They're all defeated and confused. They're all fearful because of their association with the one who just died at the hands of Jewish leaders and Roman authorities. Like, what does that mean for us? Are we gonna be next? So you read at the end of other gospel accounts, they were in a room with the door locked because they're afraid. Are we next? Are we next? And then, not long after, they are boldly spreading the message, and most of the apostles are dying for their faith eventually that they are proclaiming. Like, how many people would die for something that they know is a lie? That's different than Muslims who, like, extreme radical Muslims that strap bombs to themselves and die by suicide. They're not in a position to know if it's a lie. These guys are. So if you created an elaborate conspiracy, would you be willing to die for it? Like, if if they put your head on the chopping block, are you going to be like, oh, whoa, 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 like, kidding. Even secular writers shortly after the resurrection noted the stubborn spread of Christianity. Tacitus, for instance, he was a Roman historian around AD 64. So anyway, the spread of Christianity in and of itself doesn't prove anything. But it does beg for an explanation. So in her little book, which we're giving away out there, and if you haven't gotten one, you're welcome to grab a copy on your way out, especially if you're still just wrestling with what you believe about all of this, Um, but Rebecca McLaughlin is Easter Unbelievable, and she writes this on page 43. Some skeptics have suggested that Jesus of Nazareth was an inspiring rabbi who is mythologized over time, with the resurrection as the culmination of this process. The recipe is simple take a charismatic leader, add a virgin birth here, some miracles there, cap it off with a resurrection, and bingo, the Son of God. It sounds quite plausible at first. Indeed, the famous British skeptic Richard Dawkins imagines it this way, with early recruits to the young religion of Christianity being eager to pass on stories and rumors about Jesus without checking them for truth. But Dawkins' hypothesis is untenable. First, without the resurrection, there would have been no young religion to recruit, The Christian message is that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died to take the punishment for the sins of any who will trust in him, that he rose from the dead, and that he welcomes all who will repent and believe to live with him forever. It's not a story that can stop halfway. So rather than an elaborate conspiracy, it seems at least credible, very credible, that these people actually saw the resurrected Jesus. The tomb was empty. The eyewitness accounts don't seem to have the mark of propaganda, but rather careful historical accounts. I mean, even at the risk of being dismissed because the first witnesses were women. The eyewitness testimony broad and deep, the movement never fizzled out, instead it exploded. And it's by far the religion with the most worldwide adherence 2,000 years later. So is it credible? Yes. Two, the subtlety here. What, what are we talking about? Well, again, the account is very sparse. The other gospel accounts have a lot more detail. But there is a powerful, subtle pointer that we've got to pick up on here. Look at verse five. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robes, an angel. And they were alarmed, as we would probably be as well. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So this angelic visitor sent by God to calm the fears of the women, to tell them that Jesus was alive, he has risen, he's not here. Then he tells them to go, tell Jesus' disciples, and Peter. So think about, if you know the story, all the disciples had scattered when Jesus was arrested. They all abandoned him. Peter had at least followed at a distance, you know, to the courtyard where Jesus was being tried by the high priest. Jesus had predicted that all the disciples would scatter. And they all said, oh no, we'll follow you. Like, no matter what, especially Peter, I'll die for you. I mean, do you remember if, if you were here a couple weeks ago, but even if you weren't, like, his denial is, is just like, I and mean, it just makes you shiver a little bit when you think about it. So back in chapter 14, the third time he denied knowing Jesus He began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. He invoked a curse on himself. So he was either saying, may God damn me if I'm not telling the truth. It's a little unclear in the original language. Or he was saying, may God damn that man to hell with that man. And then he swore taking an oath that he was telling the truth. So he's likely calling on God's name. God, as my witness, I do not know this man of whom you speak. This is the Peter who had confessed that Jesus was the Messiah. The one that he had confidently claimed earlier that night, I'll never deny you. And he's saying to those bystanders, may I be cursed if I'm lying and may you be cursed if you refuse to believe me and insist on associating me with that man. So how would you expect when Jesus rises again, what message would you expect Jesus to give to Peter and the disciples? The message is not, you tell those cowardly traitors that they better meet me in Galilee and they better come groveling for mercy. No. No. He specifically singles out Peter because you can imagine, like, would you want to see Jesus after you had done that? And this is something that he had already predicted. They, they really didn't maybe hear it and understand, but back in Mark 14, after the Last Supper, they sung a hymn. They went out to the Mount of Olives. This is before the Garden of Gethsemane, before Jesus dies. Jesus said to them, you'll all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. I'm going to meet you there. Do you see the subtle and yet powerful grace that is offered here already? So New Testament scholar James Edwards, he writes this, the announcement of the angel is not one of deserved blame, even though they deserve blame, but a promise of gathering and going before them. God completes his plans for the church despite human failure. If the word of grace from the resurrected Lord includes a traitor like Peter, readers of the gospel may be assured that it includes those of their community who have also failed Christ. Do you see the subtle but powerful word of grace that is here for you and me? Like if there's hope for Peter and the disciples, there is hope for me and you. Amen. Like it doesn't matter what you've done, there is hope for us. Like, and, and see the heart of this Humble savior coming through in the manner in which he communicates to these failed disciples he came not for the healthy but the sick he came to save sinners he came to seek and save the lost we all like sheep have gone astray he died as the sacrificial lamb in our place for our sins he's also the good shepherd who laid down his life for his his sheep and we can and we should trust him And follow him. We don't have to be afraid to draw near to him. Even if we have all kinds of things we are ashamed of, he can handle that. He died for those things. So, subtle grace. Third point, strange ending. So, Mark's account, it's the shortest. It's got an abrupt beginning, if you remember back to chapter one or if you're familiar with it, and there's an abrupt ending. It's not just abrupt, it's also kind of strange. Like, we don't see Jesus. He doesn't make a resurrection appearance in Mark. It almost seems like the ending kind of gets cut off, right? Which is why we're not going to go into this. Um, There's an ending in your Bible, probably, that's in double brackets. Um, It was added later, and so that's why it's in double brackets. don't want to get down into those weeds. I also don't want to like skate over that. If you have questions about that, I'd be happy to talk to you afterwards. Um, But that was most certainly added afterwards, probably because some of these early Christians just thought, this just seems too abrupt. So verse 8, when this is the women, after they saw the angel and heard what he said, and they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So we could take a while on this, um, but let's just do it really quickly. In Mark, there is a lot of fear in the Gospel of Mark. And oftentimes, where it's associated is when Jesus reveals who he is. And he reveals himself in powerful ways, and it freaks people out, and they're scared. So Jesus calmed the storm. And the disciples are more afraid afterwards than they were even before. But isn't that crazy and wonderful? And you as the reader, you weren't in the boat, and you can say, man, that's awesome. Like, look at this guy. Or remember when Jesus shows up in the region of the Gerasenes and there's that guy that nobody could restrain, demonically controlled, And Jesus sets that guy free, casts those demons out, and everybody's afraid. But isn't that awesome? So we see the fear, and because of it, people don't know what to do, but the reader knows what to do. It's actually evidence over and over and over again of who Jesus is, why he came, and how he's worthy of our trust. So... There's more examples, but I'll, I'll skip them at this point for time's sake. So as we get to this cliffhanger at the end, it's a way for the writer to turn to us and ask, what about you? And again, we've, we've seen the whole story all along. Jesus has predicted his death. He said he's gonna rise again. And yes, they are fearful and it makes them want to be silent. But we, because we know the whole story, say, oh no, 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 no. We should shout this from the mountaintops, right? He has risen. It's no longer time to keep this to ourselves. It shouldn't lead to fear and silence. The resurrection is awesome and fearful, but it is wonderful. It is the best news in the world. Almost too good to be true. So what should we do, run away in fear? No. We see this man, the God-man, the king of kings, coming for us as a ransom, not to be served. He didn't throw his weight around, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We should believe him, trust him, follow him, and share this good news that we have. So the question is, what will you, what will I do? The cliffhanger ending turns the camera to us. Last point, deep deep beliefs. So let's bring this thing full circle. Again, think of how we're wired for happy endings, right? Isn't there a sense that something is, this is maybe like a dumb statement, right? Isn't there a sense that there's something wrong with the world? Is anybody doubting that? Like, oh, no, no. Everything's perfect. Don't we long for it to be made Right? don't you have a deep ache, a deep longing for a better future? Personally, for the world, you look at the news, it's so depressing, it's so discouraging. Don't you want hope? A brighter, better future? Well, is that just wishful thinking? I mean, if we're all just going to be fertilizer in the circle of life, Are happy endings just a scam and a con job, like a fraudulent deal? Like, why are we wired for happy endings? Why do we long for happy endings? Why is that? So there's a Stanford neuroscientist named Bill Newsom who says this. He ponders the difference between a Christian and a secular approach to science by asking this question. Do we live in a universe where our highest values and intuition about ethical behavior are in touch with the central reality of the universe and the reason the universe was built from the beginning? Or are our highest values and ethical intuitions kind of a joke, an accident, that really have nothing to do with what the universe is about? (laughs) And like, how do we even know what the universe is about if it's not about anything? Like, if there's no author, if there's no story, then the universe isn't about anything, so we wouldn't know. How could you even say, this is against what this universe is about? So listen, if we are the lucky result of random chance, time, mutations, there is no ultimate story. No author with no beginning, no tragic turn, no redemption, no happy ending. If we are just currently living you know, kind of at the apex of the evolutionary heap and the survival of the fittest will continue to blindly do its selective work and some other species will eventually snuff us out and then eventually the sun is going to burn out and who knows what happens after that, but what does it matter anyway? Then why, why, why do you feel like things aren't right? right. Yes. You're more, and this may be your neighbors, so this is said for you to love them well, or it may be you here this morning, why do you feel things aren't right? If if this is where you are, then you're more religious than you think. Why do you like what do you really believe? What are the beliefs underneath? So maybe there's a deep memory trace of a creator who made the world and everything in it, and it was all good, good, very good. And maybe doubting the goodness of that good creator, wanting to determine for ourselves what's in our best interest, maybe that's what went wrong. Maybe you and me, we are what's wrong with the world. It's called sin and rebellion, and our consciences testify to it, and our longing for redemption and renewal testify to it. And every happy ending you've ever longed for testifies to it funny how our true beliefs keep breaking in on us. So if this is you, it may be somebody you need to love this week, you can go ahead and be an atheist, but you're going to constantly bump into deep beliefs that contradict your atheism. So should you beat back those deep beliefs and thoughts and longings with cold, hard Darwinian reality? I'd say you know better life isn't like that so if you find your soulmate and you're an atheist like whatever enjoy the con job for the few years of your pathetic life if you never find your soulmate whatever too bad for you the gears turned how they did don't worry you'll soon be worm food and you won't have any sense that you missed out on anything there's your hope Again, Karl Marx, religion is the opium of the masses. What's an opium? What's what's an opium? What's an opiate, okay? It's a painkiller. Morphine is a natural one. Oxycodone is a synthetic one. So is religion, specifically Christianity, a kind of psychological painkiller intended to help us deal with the existential uncertainties of life? You know, if we keep taking it because we fear death, we don't want it to end. Listen, the Bible's way more realistic than that. If Christ is not raised, we're wasting our time. We might as well be enjoying you know, lunch and whatever else. Like selfishly try to squeeze as much satisfaction as you can out of this little vapor of a life. This is as good as it gets. Be as good as you have to be in order to get ahead, make life better for you. Why risk anything? Don't sacrifice your money or your time and certainly not your life because this is all the money, time and life that you ever get. Make sure you live in line with your deep beliefs and don't take any of those longings or the judicial sentiments that things should be set right when children get shot and killed and we cry out for justice. Don't take that seriously. You should probably hush that. Just hope you don't end up at the Christiana mall when the bullets start flying. And why would anyone ever take a bullet for someone else? But if Christ has been raised, then the resurrection of Jesus is testimony that God came to rescue us from ourselves and make all things new. He's already started. So instead, you turn from your sin, the stuff that broke this world and made such a mess of it, sins Jesus died for. And you trust in him to make you new and give you hope. If you really believe this, listen, now I'm going to turn it to us. If you're in Christ, brothers and sisters, you and me, we need to ponder our deep beliefs. We may believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but we oftentimes feel like life in this world is cold, merciless, random, and hopeless. We get depressed and we spiral and fret and worry and spin and give way to despair. But he is risen. We can beat back those thoughts with the rock solid truth, the deeper beliefs that Jesus Christ is alive and he's making all things new and we have a radiantly bright future. We have a hope that is beyond the walls of this world. So your believed in future profoundly affects how you live now. And it is not simplistic or out of touch with the harsh realities that we face in this life. Think about, imagine asking a Negro slave as they sung their spirituals, how they endured unimaginable suffering and injustice. In most cases, with no hope of any better earthly circumstances, It was the deeper belief of the resurrection of Jesus and their hope of resurrection that enabled them to endure with their heads up. So this isn't rose-colored glasses. You may have a harsh path in this life. We may suffer terribly. But we have a very bright future. So let me just close with this quote by Tim Keller. He brings it home like this The resurrection means we can look forward with hope to the day our suffering will be gone. But it even means that we can look forward with hope to the day our suffering will be glorious. When Jesus shows the disciples his hands and his feet, he's showing them his scars. The last time the disciples saw Jesus, they thought those scars were ruining their lives. The disciples had thought they were on a presidential campaign. They thought that their candidate was going to win and they were gonna be in the cabinet. When they saw the nails go into the hands and the feet and the spear going into the side, they believed those wounds had destroyed their lives. And now Jesus is showing them that in his resurrected body, his scars are still there. Why is this important? Because now that they understand the scars, the sight and memory of them will increase the glory and joy of the rest of their lives. Seeing Jesus Christ with his scars reminds them of what he did for them that the scars that they thought had ruined their lives actually saved their lives. Remembering those scars will help many of them endure their own crucifixions. On the day of the Lord, the day that God makes everything right, on that day, the same thing will happen to your own hurts and sadness. You will find that the worst things that have ever happened to you will, in the end, only enhance your eternal delight. On that day, all of it will be turned inside out, and you will know joy beyond the walls of the world. The joy of your glory will be that much greater for every scar you bear. So what do you really believe? the answer to that question changes everything. Let's pray. Lord, for anyone here who doesn't yet believe and is wrestling with these things, just like you showed your reality, showed yourself to Lisa, would you show yourself to them? Show them even how They already, in a sense, believe some of these things. They long for these things to be true, and those longings break out all the time. And I pray that you would help them trust you, turn from their sin, and run to Jesus to save them. And for us who do believe, we so often lose sight of our hope that is real and living and unshakable and blessed. And I pray that you would help us to beat back the despair and the hopelessness with the reality and the hope of the resurrection. All that is ours because Jesus Christ has risen. He is not here just as he said. Not in the tomb. He is alive. So help us, Lord, to set our hope fully on the grace that is ours because of Jesus and the grace that will be brought to us when he returns. In Jesus' name, amen.